Hello and welcome to Counterculture. I'm Peter Whittle. Now, before we go into this week's discussion, uh, please do subscribe, won't you? Um, I'm saying this every time, but it's uh, paying off because we've had 5,000 subscribers in just three weeks. Uh, what you do is you press the subscribe button, and next door to that, there is a little blue bell. And if you press that too, then that's notifications. It means you get notified of every new program as it comes up. So uh, please do that, don't, won't you? And uh, that would be great. Um, well, today on Counterculture, we're going to be discussing England, Englishness, and what happens to the union. This is a very, very popular subject with our viewers, and it's one that we have uh, covered a bit in the past. Um, but we want to look really at what the future is really for this thing called England, uh, politically and culturally. I'm very pleased that, uh, to discuss this today. We have Robin Tilbrook, who is the uh, chairman and indeed the founder of the English Democrats, Emma Webb uh, from Civitas, and Nigel Jones, who is a biographer, historian, and commentator. Um, can I start, first of all, by asking you, Robin, what is it that the English Democrats want? So our primary campaigning position is that we want independence for England. Yeah. Obviously, that necessarily means dissolution of the United Kingdom. We did, we did campaign for about 15 years on the idea that we should have an English parliament with the first minister and government with at least the same powers as the Scottish ones within the federal UK. Um, but what we were finding was that, that basically the British establishment want to break England up and their, their agenda is to break England into these sort of bogus regions that have no sort of historic meaning to them. Um, and uh, so consequently, the choice really becomes, yes. is England broken up or is the UK broken up? And uh, obviously, as English nationalists, English patriots, we're concerned to make sure that England remains uh, its sort of historic unity. Yes. Um, and... Um, um, of course, there are many other points that, uh, that arise because England is actually quite unfairly treated in terms of what the way the, the, the British state looks after it. We're the only part of the of the United Kingdom where the British government has direct rule over us. We've seen this very clearly with the whole coronavirus crisis, um, where the British uh, Secretary of State for Health, Matt Hancock, is the one issuing all the orders, whereas. Uh, in Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland, they've got their own governments, and they're obviously focusing a bit more on the needs of their nation. Um, we've just gone through uh, the the first of April, where every year in England the uh, prescription charges go up, uh, but in Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland they're free. Um, and there's now um, a, a lot more discussion about the fact that um, quite a lot of the money that's raised in England is actually spent in, in subsidising to an extra extent um, what happens in Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland. And for instance, there was, there was an article in The Telegraph only a couple of days ago pointing out that the spending in Scotland is 30% on average above um, what it is in England. And the reason for that is that English taxpayers, through the Barnet formula, are paying for it. The Barnet formula, just in case people don't know, this is the... Can you explain very briefly? Yes. So uh, back in the 70s, uh, there was the first secretary of the Treasury in the Labour government and uh, called Joel Barnett. And he invented, more or less on the back of a fag packet, literally, um, a, a formula whereby the Scots, uh, in particular at that time, were going to get at least 10% extra right. out of the block grant 
um, which is the way that the state allocates um, money um, for subsidies. And the, re the result of that, of course, is that you, you wind up getting at least 10% extra spent in, in Scotland mm. um, uh, for anything. And, and that includes, for instance, um, even capital projects. So money spent in London uh, for um, the uh, Crossrail mm. project or the um, proposal to spend a vast amount of money on... Um, uh, building a railway up to Birmingham or Manchester, wherever it's going to go in the end. Um, and even though the Scots may not have actually a project to suspend it on, mm. they still get a lump sum of billions, um, about 10%, um, handed to them as part of the Barnet Consequentials. Yes. Does that, do you think, does that manifesto resonate with you, Nigel? I have to say not particularly because I think England as the most populous part of the United Kingdom has always had certain advantages. Uh, perhaps now it's coming back to bite us um, in that I don't, I think because we've been, as it were, the top dogs in the UK, um, I think we haven't thought very much about uh, questions of English patriotism and English nationalism or uh, the fact that the Scots um, sort of get a get, a, if you like, a free ride on the English taxpayer because we have had a certain we. When I say we English, I'm I'm half Welsh, so maybe we'll come on to discuss wh wh how this affects people who are a bit of both, who are half Welsh, half Scottish, half Irish, whatever. But uh, I, I think that England did have a, a, an inbuilt sense of superiority, and that was, I think, tied up with the empire. And I think when the empire dissolved in the uh, 40s, 50s, 60s, um, England was, England was uh, left a bit bereft because the British Empire had gone. And what was Britain? That was the question. And um, I, I think it was um, Dean Acheson, the, uh, the American uh, diplomat and politician, said England has lost an empire, Britain has lost an empire. There I am, you see, I'm... <laughs> using the two <laughs> things interchangeably. Uh, England, uh, Britain has lost an empire, um, has not found a role. And then our ill-fated attempt to link ourselves with Europe and the EU, um, which has occupied us for the last 40, 50 years. Um, and um, now, now that we're out of the EU and unlikely to go back, um, I think that the question of England is a big one, is arising, especially as I see Scottish nationalism, and to a certain extent Welsh nationalism, largely composed of anti-Englishness. Mm. Yes, I'd just like to say, I, I totally agree with Nigel about um, the, the role of empire in, in the creation of the United Kingdom. I mean, that's what, that's what it was all about. I mean, the United Kingdom wasn't created because ordinary people wanted a United Kingdom. The, the, the ordinary Scots, ordinary English, did not want... Um, the Act of Union. In fact, the, the Scots, uh, I think, marked that rather clearly by making it, making the place where the Act of Union agreement was signed uh, into a public toilet uh, in, in Edinburgh. Really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I'm told. Um, but, but the point is in 1707, we, we were, England and, and Scotland, for that matter, were at war under one crown, uh, uh, Queen Anne, um, with, um, Louis XIV. Uh, and of course, the Act of Union with Ireland, 1801, we were, we were at war with, um, with Napoleon Bonaparte. Uh, and so in both cases, those Acts of Union were about empire and about world power and, 
uh, realpolitik, as it were, rather yes, than yes. about what ordinary people wanted. And I, I think we've got an opportunity now, as all of that's gone, uh, to focus more on what people want rather than on, on, on imperial politics and power. I think that's an interesting point, actually, that the leaving the EU has... It'll take a while, perhaps, but it's actually going to, you know, highlight all of these issues. I mean, we're, we've been preoccupied with this pandemic and everything, haven't we? Hmm. But this is going to come to the fore. Um, I mean, do you, would you call yourself British or English? English. English. Yeah. Is that sort of a conscious thing? Um, I don't think so. But because I would, I would regard myself as probably more of a unionist <laughs> um, and perhaps politically unionist but culturally English and so um, I think there are there are benefits to the union and, and that's one reason why at least at this point in time I'm inclined t- towards the arguments to try uh, it, sort of almost uh, with any means to try and keep it held together uh, for political reasons but culturally I think there is there is a very good point there that as you mentioned that um, Scottish and Welsh uh, nationalism as with many other ideologies that we're constantly being bombarded with are distinctively anti-English and we've suffered in many ways from the fact that you know the benefits of us being so culturally um, and politically influential from the empire and within the union that we have uh, an almost blindness towards English culture and English issues Um, and I think probably the the interplay between the cultural concern there and the political is what will turn out to be um, important. And I don't think that, although their intention, I don't think that necessar- uh, necessarily um, you have. I think that there is that you can strike a balance there in the way that I do personally as as a uni- unionist who identifies as being English. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think perhaps one solution is to. Um, try to find ways to um, bolster people's uh, national identity in a healthy way within different parts of the union without necessarily having to make the argument for breaking the union apart. Finding a way to make it a little bit less dysfunctional and um, see if their marriage can be made to work. <laughs> well, the thing is, is this is the problem, isn't it? Because uh, Scottish and Welsh nationalism was always seen as kind of like cool. Mm-hmm. And essentially progressive, this word yes. progressive, i.e. left wing, right? Mm-hmm. Left wing. English nationalism is seen as somehow thuggish yes. uh, automatically and fascist. somehow fascist, yes, and or it's certainly nationalist. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So either skinheads or more stances. I was going to say in response to what Emma was saying that, that actually the British state, as it's working at the moment, is quite focused on trying to sort of clamp down on any idea of Englishness. Mm. Um, the, the, the whole way in which um, sort of political correctness agenda is working is basically to say that you're not allowed to say you're English. Mm. And if you do try and say you're English, um, then you know, mm. all sorts of inquiries should be made into, into why you're saying that and perhaps you know, <laughs> along the lines of what you're, what you're saying. But it, that is completely untrue of um, Scottish or Welsh or... Uh, Irish nationalism, funnily enough. I mean, if you you think about Irish nationalism, which has involved um, plenty of violence um, over the years, um, that's that's okay. But English nationalism, which hasn't involved that that violence, 
somehow that that's not okay. Yeah, I think the problem is, as I was saying, that England is very much the the dominant partner in the union, and I think whenever you get a, a, a minority, particularly a strong minority, who resent the domination, I mean, God help, God hope this will never happen to England. But let's take the example of former Yugoslavia, where the Croats were a substantial minority vis-a-vis the Serbs, who were the major force, and the Bosnian Muslims were an even smaller minority, and the Slovenians were even smaller than, than that. And I think they always resented the dominance of the major group, the major majority population. The capital was in Serbia, Belgrade. Similarly, I think that there's resentment among the Scots, the Irish and the, uh, and the Welsh of the dominance of this, the fact that our parliament, the only parliament uh, before devolution is centred here in London, mm. a few yards away from here in Westminster. I think that res- that that is a major force behind this resentment. And any display of English nationalism, the St George's flag that you're wearing in your lapel, provokes either contempt, i.e. Emily Thornbridge sneeringly Mm -hmm. tweeting the picture of the St George's flag. I've just been spending Easter in a a seaside town uh, in Sussex called Selsey, which is a sort of microcosm Mm -hmm. of English nationalism. And there are lots and lots of union flags there are also lots and lots of St George's mm. flags there. Mm. So I do think that English nationalism is a sleeping giant which has been prodded into life by the nationalism of the smaller components of the UK. But can I just, before we go on to discuss I just want one thing. You, you're talking about the dominance of England <coughs> when it came to the empire and such like. Hang on, the Scots... Their role <laughs> was it phenomenal in the empire, Absolutely, wasn't yes. it? I mean, it was. they seem to have really forgotten, yeah. and and also they even start wanted to start their own empire, didn't they? Famously, um, before the kind of British Empire, there was this sort of attempt, wasn't there, in South America? Darien, or the Darien yeah. scheme in yes. Central. That's right. what caused the Act of Union because yes. they were bankrupt because yes. of the failure of the Darien scheme. So what is all this yeah. like? Let's let's all blame the English thing. That, you know, I mean, it's 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 the Scots were very much there, weren't they? Mm. They were. We, we do have an odd situation, though, with um, Celtic nationalism, because both, well, the SNP, Clyde Cumberland, and also Sinn Féin, they, they've, all, they've all become basically Marxist, mm. um, yes. or at any rate, yes. far left. Um, they, 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 they're not nationalists. They, they're sort of trading on nationalism. Mm. And in fact, we, in the run-up to the last general election, I, I noticed that Nicola Sturgeon said that she wanted to see Scotland to be an independent, internationalist country yes. within the EU, mm. which sounded to me completely mm. cuckoo. But yeah. but you know that that that's good what she said. That. Yes, yes. Good luck with that. Um, how would you, Robin? How would you define? Therefore, we've talked about we just mentioned English culture there. How would you define English culture if you had to? Because one of the questions that we always find ourselves talking about here is, is basically, you know that the left will quite sneeringly say, well, what is British culture anyway? They say things like that, you know, when you're talking about British values, British culture. What is it anyway? What do you think is distinct about English culture? Well, can I, as a lawyer, therefore, yeah. uh, um, interested in um, how this we, works we'll out in court? we lawyers on this show, <laughs> don't worry. Um, because the um, Labour... Uh, inspired, as it were, and written um, Equality Act has actually de- has actually of- offers a, a sort of definition, a multi-layered multi-layered definition. Um, 
So some, uh, a, a, nation, a national identity um, like English um, can be a national identity, which is uh, to a large extent about where, where you feel you uh, belong. So to answer Nigel's point, he, you know, he could be English and Welsh and feel strongly about being English, which would make him by national identity English. Um, there's also been court cases, um, uh, in fact, funny enough, involving the BBC, where um, English was defined as being a racial group. Mm. Um, and uh, there's also English as an ethnicity, because ethnicity has been defined by the courts as being a sort of subset of things. So English is a, the subset of, uh, of British um, and therefore is an ethnicity. Um, but then, you, then you've got sort of cultural origin, which I think is what, yeah. what you were referring to. Um, and cultural origin, um, obviously, it's, it's, what, it's what people associate with being English uh, as much as anything. As anything. You, don't, you don't really get... You, I don't think any nation gets a sort of definition of, no. of um, what it is to be of that nation. But, of course, people recognise it and they know what's meant by it. Um, the, the, some, some people on the left, of course, are trying to sort of deconstruct the whole idea of nation. Um, and, um, for instance, I saw one of the, the squad um, before the um, American presidential election saying that it wasn't just Trump's wall that was racist, but, but the very idea of borders was racist. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously, such people um, they, they they are going to come up with purely instrumental points to try and uh, delegitimize what they regard as a as a hostile thing, which is the very idea of nation. Yes. But for those of us that actually care about our nation, we don't we don't really need a definition about it. It's in our hearts. You know, we we yes. we, we love our country. We we want we want to see it do well. I find actually a bit like you know. I find that I call myself English now, and I mean one thing I found quite interesting is that my my uh, my parents, uh, bless them, when they you know they were always British, you know, and they talked about Britain, and then there's just kind of was imperceptible every period of time they started calling themselves English, and I think it's because there was this feeling that somehow something mm-hmm. was being lost. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. I think um, with any nation, not just the English, it, it's something that is comes out of attachments. It's something that grows up organically. It's why when Orwell um, he gave what could sort of his closest definition to Englishness was just a set of impressions things like the the nun riding her bike along the cobblestones and things like that it's it's things that you're attached to and and it it plays into everything like the common law our institutions things that um can't be man-made by one generation but just accumulate over many and therefore are particularly precious and people have an inexplicable attachment to them that can't possibly be explained it's not something that can be pinned down in a definition it's a reason why firstly it's so difficult to protect and also why it's so vulnerable against ideologies like we're currently seeing with some of these um sort of postmodernist um deconstructionist marxist ideas that want to tear down all of our institutions because they say that they're systemically racist or they're systemically misogynist or they're systemically something evil um and i think that that is one of the reasons why along with other things like a sense of loss of place the transience of communities because of globalization and mass immigration people feel the sense of loss um that Make, it, it, it creates a need to identify yourself as English in a way that you wouldn't have felt before. But again, it's not, as we discussed in a previous um, counterculture, it, it's not because of a sort of xenophobia to anything mm. outside or to the uh, to the threats, but a response to 
the affection towards the things that you love in the same way that you would love your own family or your own children or your own home. I think there is this thing, is it, Nigel, that uh, the, the, you're quite right, the left uh, tend to portray it as being a kind of a, an aggressive thing. But in fact, you know, it, often it's just like people wanting familiarity. Uh, th- there's a sense in which people now are t- told, and this is certainly London telling the country, you know, that familiarity is wrong, that it's provincial, that it's, you know, it's small-minded. And it's always applied to the English, is it not? It is. And... Um... The danger of that, of course, is that the English are then going to feel threatened and going to react by perhaps conforming to the stereotypes that has been put on them. Alternatively, they could ask themselves, as Emma said, what do we mean by English, by being English? What are the associations that we have? And I don't think that uh, whatever the court said about um, race and ethnicity... I don't think Englishness is a question of race. For example, David uh, Lammy, the very left-wing black Mm. Labour MP for North London, got very aerated with a caller who said, well, you're not English. And he Mm. said, well, actually, I am. I was born in England, brought up, I identify as English, as a a black Englishman. And I think he was right. I mean, I don't often agree with David Lammy, but I think he was absolutely right to, um, Mm. to make that point. And... What do I think of? <laughs> I think of it's, it's, it's places, it's culture. It can range from anything from cricket to roast beef to Morris minutes. <laughs> not, not that that's a particular thing, but it's a, it's a whole range. It's Peter Cook, it's um, Ray Fawn Williams' music. It's an absolute medley of impressions, memories, um, uh, a words. Country, a country, in other words. Yeah. A country. It's and also a local nationalism as well. People, people are in the same way that they are in Scotland or yeah. in France. People are particularly, you know, they identify and feel affection towards particular areas, particular towns, particular regions. Right. Yeah. Uh, the yeah. landscape. I mean, pa- the pastoral scenes are something that's very associated with Englishness. And I think that w- English. No, I'm not going to say nationalism, but I think English patriotism is. Um, much more associated firstly with country than nation which is a distinction that Roger Scruton also makes um, but is an, an almost an inherent disadvantage because Scottish nationalism and Irish nationalism particularly and maybe to some extent just the Celtic nationalisms um, are they have a sort of revolutionary fervour to them whereas English nationalism seem or patriotism seems to be somehow more inherently conservative it's not try because it hasn't needed to because no. of it, the power dynamics it's it hasn't needed to to assert itself exactly. in a kind of revolutionary way because it wasn't it didn't it wasn't yes. the counterculture and so it doesn't have any of the of the sort of like fashionable um, thrill that you get with being part of a kind of revolutionary um, counterculture. One of the key things about uh, English patriotism or nationalism is that it's very old. Mm. If you think Germany was united in 1871, Italy, 1863, um, England was united in 927, on the 12th of July, 927, for those that uh, want the date, <laughs> at the Council of Emont, up near Penrith, uh, under King Athelstan. Um, and, and so actually, you know, on, 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 we, we see the world, I think English people mm-hmm. at any rate do, see the world through the idea and prism of nationhood. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you, if you were a German, for example, 
that's much more um, or Italian, even. arguable or Italian. Yeah. Yes, I mean, it, it, in Italy, they've, they've still got some of the laws uh, that were passed during Mussolini's time requiring uh, school kids to speak of of all the Italian languages, to speak only Italian in mm. school, mm. because they were trying to create a sense of of nation mm. from something that had been previously. You know, right back to yes. to classical times, had been has been separated into different um, nations or different um, states, at any rate, um, and had different languages. Um, so Venetian wasn't the same as Milanese, no, um, no. and those languages still exist and are still spoken by people living in those in those um, areas. Uh, but uh, Italian has has been is a sort of project. Uh, to try and create a, a united Italy uh, and a sense of, of, of Italianness, mm. whereas that isn't true of of, uh, of Englishness. Englishness is is much older, um, and um, it 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 never really was sort of divided in in the in the way that um, uh, we get with most of the uh, European states. If you mm. go back a hundred years or so, um, I'm reading a book about uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire at the moment. And, the curious thing there is that actually the empire itself more or less created the nations yes. um, by insisting upon people being taught uh, in their own local languages rather than um, having uh, an over overarching language. Um, but English, you know, is, is, has, has been the language that everybody has spoken in England for many, many centuries. Um, you know, well before, well before um, Shakespeare, or, and, and no doubt even before uh, Chaucer. Um, but you know that our, our unity is something that we we just simply assume. Could I come back on one other thing that Emma was saying about Britishness? Because obviously I've spoken to a lot of, a lot of uh, uh, British politicians over the years, and um, one of the things I find quite interesting is that they they never come up with any uh, argument for the union apart from it enables us to punch above our weight on the world stage. Mm. I don't know about you, but I don't particularly want to get involved in punching any sort of weight on the world stage, if if at all possible. I'd rather have a you know, I'd rather have a state that we, where we were we were less ambitious to be punching our, our weight I, on the world stage. I, I think I think it's interesting that Little England is always used as a politi- as a sneering political insult. Mm. But I don't really see anything wrong with being a Little Englander. I remember David Cameron said at one point, well, we don't want to become like Switzerland, mm. as though Switzerland was a horrible little <laughs> thing on the bottom of his shoe, whereas Switzerland is, a, is an example of a multi-ethnic, certainly multilingual society that has maintained independence without going to war uh, with anyone, uh, proudly, sturdily. I think Switzerland is pretty good. It's kind, of, it's kind it's of it's terribly bo- dull. It's kind of boring. It's, it? it's I mean, boring, but it's um... kind of boring. Chocolate and clock. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not trying to make a case for Swiss nationalism. Well, you were actually not. Oh, <laughs> but, but, but it's not. <laughs> but at least it's not revolutionary. No, no. It's not what about this? There is this, uh, this, this very uh, inchoate, but nevertheless very strong feeling about. Uh, which I I subscribe to, which is that I like the United Kingdom. But frankly, if we are so hated and if they want to get us so much, then fine by me. Yeah. Just go off, you know, mm. as an Englishman. I sort of I'm not sure that we should buy the SNP's narrative as, as being representative of the feelings of the Scottish people, though. I don't know how representative they actually are. They didn't actually win <laughs> when, mm. they, when they put it to the vote. And um, I think 
like you were saying, most people, even though I identify as English and I've got Welsh heritage, I might have a little bit of Scottish in there. Most people have uh, a mix um, and the same is true in Scotland and the lowlands are very different politically from the highlands and the cities are very different from the rural areas. And so, you know, I think it's important not to buy into the SNP's narrative and to bolster them by responding as if they are actually representing the feelings of the Scottish people, because I think it's so much more complicated than that. Well, I, I noticed a, an, an interesting opinion poll after the referendum in Scotland, um, which was saying that, in fact, the majority of ethnic Scots had actually voted for independence. The, what, what, what tripped them back into um, getting a, a no result was actually uh, English immigrants into Scotland, <laughs> of whom there are nearly a million um, and over 80% really? of those voted no. Mm. Um, so th- that, that was, I thought, an interesting insight no. into what, what had I, gone I on I there. tend to agree with what Peter said, that uh, yeah, let's compare it to an unhappy marriage. Um, if one partner uh, can't stand it and wants to get away and wants to break away, and I, I agree with Emma, we shouldn't necessarily <laughs> assume that um, the majority of Scots do buy into this SM narrative but if they do or if they in five years ten years time do um, I think most English people would say go I don't think there would be a great battle I sad to say in some ways to save the union because I think there was in that a... sense Britishness has has weakened yes. over the last because 50 years the, Brit- the British state has actually been in effect trying to bribe Scots to vote to keep Right. the union yeah. that's what the Barnet formula is partly yep. about yep. and it was actually expressly about at the time it was it was about trying to uh, undermine the uh, appeal of uh, Scottish nationalism. If I could just say that the one thing or one of the things that seems to be keeping the whole thing together actually is is the monarchy is the institution of monarchy in a way. Now if Scotland got independence or if you know, English got independence um, would we just have an English monarchy? Would it actually go back to being, possibly, with Elizabeth II? Elizabeth I was the last purely English queen, wasn't she? Yes, she was. And, and of course, the, the Act of Union um, in 1707 did actually create, uh, and it says so, uh, United Kingdom of Great Britain. Yeah. So for Scotland to go, that's got to be repealed. Yeah. And the two... Um, political cult, um, constitutional entities that were brought together in the Act of Union was the Kingdom of England and the Kingdom of Scotland. Um, that, that's, what, that's what the Act of Union was about. Yeah. Um, as far as the Welsh concerned, the Welsh, Wales had been incorporated into the Kingdom of England in 1536 under the Tudors. But, it, of course, if you, if you repeal the Act of Union, mm. then um, you have the the crown, the, the king or queen of England. But I don't think that, I don't think it, it necessarily has um, uh, an impact on the monarchy beyond that, because if you think about it, after all, there's the, there's the, que- the queen is also the queen of Canada. She's the queen of Australia. Yes, but the interesting thing is that this might seem like a small point, but I mean, you know, the time being as it is, uh, the queen is not going to be here for many, many, many years. Uh, you could have a situation where Scotland says, actually, that's fine. Now, with her going, we do not want, you know, King Charles III, or as he would be Charles II, wouldn't he be in Scotland, I think? 
Yes. Um, that could actually be a major symbolic thing, could it not? I mean, it's breaking a tie. It's breaking one of the things that keeps the union together. Yeah, yeah I think the I, I think there will be questions when the mm. present queen goes, um, and um, maybe this is why Prince Charles likes to wear a kilt so often, so frequently, <laughs> and uh, likes pretty, or, may, or maybe likes yeah, cross dressing anyway. Um, but I think I think the monarchy is a symbol uh, of union, and. Um, it was significant, um, one of the uh, diplomatic lapses that David Cameron meant when he relayed mm. the result of the Scottish independence yes. referendum to the Queen, he said she purred with delight, or words to that, 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 that effect. Mm. And that won't be forgotten, no, absolutely. No, no. Yeah. We uh, still don't have a public holiday for St George's Day, do we? No. This must be some, one of your lesser demands in your Yes, we, 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 we do say there should be a public holiday for, yeah. for St George's Day. It is Day. extraordinary, isn't it, though, that we don't have a public holiday? We, we don't have any public holiday specifically about um, England or the English, yes. unlike the um, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, who, yeah. who have separate holidays. Yeah. Um, and uh, England, of course, has, um, curiously, three saints. We have um, St George of, for England, we have St Edmund for the English, and we have um, St. Edward the Confessor for the English monarchy. Um, and uh, so you could have any one of three saints' days, or you, in fact you could have a secular um, date, which would be the date of our unification, 12th yes. of July. Yes. Although some uh, Ulsterman might uh, argue <laughs> about that date. <laughs> Can you think of, uh, just to finish off, I, mean, so I, I, I glory in being an Englishman, actually. I mean, I love even saying it. I love saying I'm an Englishman, you know, I, I do. Uh, in Gilbert and Sullivan's, despite all temptation, he remains an Englishman. <laughs> um, but uh, is there something you can feel that is tokenistically or in, in essence English for us to finish the programme with St George's Day just around the corner? What would you say is a, a, an English thing that you could do or, would, uh, or a feeling you have? You say, oh, that's actually very English. For me, it's humour without question. Sort of humour. Yes, we, we, we have a, an unusual sense of humour, I think, yeah. uh, English. And, and pragmatism. Uh, pragmatism. We are pragmatic as well. Um, and, and I think the, the, the sheer length of our history makes us mm. not so revolutionary, as, as you're saying, much more sort of able to take a long view on cool things. Cool-headed. Yeah. Yes. I think the English language. Language. English yeah, language. And associated with it, arguably the greatest literature, yes. the greatest writer. Yeah. In the world, yes. and, uh, and it's a language which has travelled everywhere. It's now the universal language. So that would be my English Yes, for me, it's the landscape. The landscape. Yeah. So I think um, that the, there are some places, particularly, that have that ancient feeling to them. Um, and I think most people would be pretty hard pressed to go to those places and to not feel places like Lindisfarne. Um, even to some extent, I feel the same way about Scotland. So maybe it's not perfectly uh, distinctively program, English. I think, <laughs> but I think there's something about the way that places in, you know, places in Suffolk, and mm. there there are, there are some places that just feel distinctively English and pastoral, and they have mm. that deep sort of ancient wild feeling alongside the kind of gentle pastoral nature that seems to sort of fit the English character. And sometimes even um, the English landscape is, is summed up in a piece of music, like Vaughan Williams' mm -hmm. um, Fantasia on a theme by Thomas oh, Tannis. Whenever I hear that, I think of 
English hillsides. Yeah. English. Mm-hmm. I remember going to when I was on holiday in the Morven Hills once. Yeah. Went to the top there. It's very corny, but played the played the Enigma variations. But mm. it, it was a very much of a time. I mean, the fact is uh, to finish it. How easy it was for us to come up with those things. Humour, landscape and language. It took no time at all, did it? Yeah. So that shows the strength of something, I think. Yeah. Um, anyway, on that note, thank you very, very much, Robin. Thank you, Nigel and Emma. And, uh, well, we'll see you next time, but um, also celebrate St George's Day when it comes. Um, uh, and we certainly will be. Okay, so see you next time. Thank you. 